Today on episode 16 of the California Slap Law Podcast, we're going to discuss when you can join with another defendant's anti-slap motion and whether it's a good strategy to do so, what the courts of appeal are doing to deal with all the appeals from anti-slap motions, and likely changes to the automatic right of appeal. Welcome to the California Slap Law Podcast. California's slap law was a great idea, but it can be a minefield for the uninformed. To guide you through that minefield, here's your host, One of kind. from the law firm of Morris & Stone, Aaron Morris. Welcome to the 16th episode of the California Slap Law Podcast. My name is Aaron Morris. I'm a senior, more senior every day, partner with the Southern California law firm of Morris & Stone. If we can be of assistance with anything having to do with speech, defamation, or anti-slap motions, please feel free to call at 714-954-0700. That's 714-954-0700 or email me at morris at toplawfirm.com. Not the bottom law firm, the top law firm. That's right, you wouldn't want to go to the bottom law firm. You want the top law firm. Now, I want to start by correcting a possible error from the last podcast. It's kind of like the old joke, I thought I made a mistake once, but I was wrong. I don't know if I was really wrong, but I want to make sure the record is accurate. Ironically, the possible error only serves to illustrate the point I was making at the time of the last podcast. In episode 15, I cautioned that you should not overreach in your anti-slap motions because if you challenge five causes of action, for example, and only exceed on four, the plaintiff can then argue that your request for attorney's fees should be reduced to reflect that one unsuccessful argument. Well, that's precisely what happened to me. I challenged all five claims against that were made against my client, and I only won on four. But I happily reported that although plaintiff made the apportionment argument, the judge didn't buy it. I reported that based on the judge's comments. In fact, when opposing counsel made the apportionment argument, the judge made that little dismissive gesture with his hand. So I was pretty confident that he wasn't buying into the argument. But then, since that time, the actual order came out. Uh, we were asking for a little bit over $20,000 in attorney's fees, and the court reduced it to $18,000 in, uh, in the order. Now, the judge gave no explanation for the reduction, so I, I don't really know the basis, but the apportionment may have been a part of it. So I'll just use the reduction to again make the point, don't overreach in your anti-slap motions. Now, by the way, another great lesson came out of that case. In the same minute order, there was a ruling on a motion for attorney's fees by a, a different party. And something came up that's never come up in my practice before, but it's uh, definitely worth filing away in your brain. One of the other defendants in the action is Ripoff Report, which is owned by a guy named Ed Magidson, who operates it through a company called Eccentric Ventures, LLC. Eccentric is based in Arizona, and Magidson likes to have his own attorneys represent Eccentric, so they bring Pro Hoc Vice motions to handle the out-of-state cases, and that's what happened in this case. The attorney for Eccentric was admitted Pro Hoc Vice and brought a successful anti-slap motion pursuant to the Communications Decency Act. Then came time for the motion for attorney's fees. The attorney for Eccentric supported her motion for attorney's fees with copies of the invoices from her firm, which totaled about $26,000 for all the time spent on the anti-slap motion. So far, so good. Eccentric filed a motion for $26,000 in attorney's fees. But then closer inspection of the invoices revealed that various associates at the firm had done most of the work on the anti-slap motion. 
not the attorney that had gone to court and brought the Pro Hoc Vice motion. Well, hold on, Maud. Those associates never filed a Pro Hoc Vice motion. Thus, we actually had attorneys in Arizona seeking to recover attorney's fees for work done on a motion brought in California. Well, we can't let that happen. So out of the $26,000 requested, the judge awarded only $9,000. Ouch. Again, the judge offered no explanation for the reduction, but that was the only scenario that would justify such an extreme reduction. So keep that in mind if you ever have a case with Pro Hoc Vice counsel on the other side in the situation where attorney's fees come up. Look at the invoice to see who is actually doing the work. Now, counsel for Eccentric argued that her admission admitted the entire firm, but obviously the judge didn't agree. And I, and I think that, make, that only makes sense. When you apply Pro Hoc Vice, you provide basically your resume to convince the court that you're worthy to appear in that court. If admitting one person admitted the entire firm, well, then that process would become a farce. Now, as an aside to all of these fee motions, none of the defendants hold a lot of hope in collecting the attorney fees in this case. Get this. Opposing counsel's car was repossessed while she was in court arguing the motion. So I don't think she's in the best of financial shape. Next, I want to discuss some recent developments as regards appeals from anti-slap motions. Now, let me lay out the statutory framework a little bit. CCP section 425.16i provides very simply, an order granting or denying a special motion to strike shall be appealable under section 904.1. Okay, so what does section 904.1 provide? Well, CCP section 904.1 subparagraph 13 states, an appeal other than in a limited civil case may be taken from any of the following. And then paragraph 13 provides, from an order granting or denying a special motion to strike under section 425.16. It's kind of stupidly circular when you think about it. Section 425.16 provides that an appeal from an anti-slap motion can be taken as provided for in section 904.1, and 904.1 refers you back to section 425.16. But in any event, as currently stated, section 425.16 permits an immediate appeal from the granting or denial of an anti-slap motion. And that brings us to our discussion of the right of automatic appeal and what the future may hold. In the case I've been discussing, the plaintiff, who happens to be an attorney, has lost, I think, six anti-slap motions at this point. She has filed notices of appeal for all six motions and is filing appeal notices as each attorney fee motion is heard. We all received a notice from the Court of Appeal expressing frustration that appeals from anti-slap motions are often ill-conceived and requiring the parties to submit a briefing schedule. Plaintiff submitted a fairly reasonable schedule setting forth different dates the briefs would need to be submitted as to each defendant, and I was actually fine with her proposed schedule because our brief would have been the last one due. I might as well have the benefit of everyone else's briefs before we have to draft ours. In fact, only one of the defendants objected to the uh, briefing schedule by the plaintiff, but the Court of Appeal said nay, 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 and it imposed its own strict 60-30-30 briefing schedule. 60 days for the plaintiff's opening brief, 30 days for defendant's respondent's opening brief, and then 30 days for the reply brief. And the Court of Appeal added this warning to the order. It said, quote, any request to deviate from this order must be supported by a showing of extraordinary good cause, close quote. So the appellate courts, the fourth appellate district certainly, are really trying to move along these appeals from anti-slap motions. 
I'll let you know how quickly the court itself decides the appeal after it's fully briefed. It's kind of ridiculous for the court to impose a 60-30-30 schedule uh, if it's going to take forever to decide it. And that takes us to what the future may hold as to automatic appeals. There's something called the Conference of California Bar Associations. They get together and they decide what would be good to change in the law, and they submit it to the legislature for consideration. When they meet, they discuss and vote on the proposals. And if they vote on something, they give something a thumbs up, it goes to the legislature for consideration. So there's an entity out there, there's an association out there called the California Society of Entertainment Lawyers, and it submitted a proposal for a change to CCP sections 425.16 and 904.1, the ones I just went over, that would eliminate many of these automatic appeals following anti-slap motions. So before we get to their proposal, let me tell you the backstory. On August 27, 2015, the 6th District Court of Appeal issued an opinion in the case of Hewlett-Packard Company versus Oracle. Now, Hewlett-Packard makes these high-end computers that use software written by Oracle. But Oracle bought Sun Systems, which offers its own high-end computers. Now, these aren't these aren't Windows computers I'm talking about. These are, I'll just call them supercomputers. I don't know if that's the actual designation, maybe supercomputers reserved for something else, but these are these are very high-end computers. So Sun Microsystems was now providing the Oracle software to a competitor after Oracle bought Sun Microsystems. So Oracle decided to stop making the software available to Hewlett-Packard. And here's where things get fun, so follow along. HP sued Oracle, and after a couple of years of litigation in a bifurcated trial, the court found under HP's declaratory relief action that Oracle was required to provide the software to HP under their agreement. So the only issue remaining was to determine how much in damages HP had suffered. But Oracle did not go quietly into the night. Oracle held a big press conference and announced that it was going to appeal the court's decision. But think about the impact that announcement has on HP. Say you're a university, for example, and you're looking to buy a supercomputer. You can buy one from HP, but if Oracle wins on appeal, you'll end up with a very expensive paperweight because you won't be able to get the software you need to run the computer. Now, even though Oracle announced that it was going to appeal the decision, it also recognized that it would be running up the damages if it made HP computers unmarketable. So it tried a little strategy of steering two paths at the same time. After having announced that it was going to appeal the decision, the decision that mandated it provide software to HP, it held another press conference, and this time Oracle announced that it would honor the court's ruling and would continue to make its software available for HP computers. But Oracle did not disavow the promised appeal. So HP found itself in a very strange position. Remember, the trial was bifurcated. They decided the issue of the declaratory relief action first. They decided whether Oracle was required to provide the software to HP. Before that portion of the trial, HP had submitted a damage calculation based on the fact that Oracle was saying it would never again provide software to run the HP computers. With Oracle's announcement that it would provide the software, the damage calculation changed. So HP notified the court basically said, okay, now we've got the second phase coming up, but court, you need to be aware that the prior damage calculation we provided to Oracle and provided to this court, um, it's going to change. We're going to have to have our experts revise the damage calculation to reflect the fact that Oracle 
is now stating it will continue to provide the software, which will have the effect of increasing sales of our computers. But the experts will have to calculate the sales that will still be lost because of Oracle's announcement that it's going to appeal the court's decision on the declaratory relief action. Did you follow all that? Okay, so now we're going to play a game called Evil Attorney. Now, I'm not saying any of the attorneys representing Oracle were evil. I'm sure they're fine, upstanding attorneys. But hypothetically speaking, let's say you were an evil attorney working at Oracle and you were looking for a way to delay this trial. How would you go about it? Well, you, the attorney at Oracle, know that every day that goes by where HP's continued ability to use Oracle software is in doubt, well, that's going to hurt HP's market share and that's going to benefit Oracle's Sun Systems, excuse me, Sun Microsystems. Is there some way you could delay this trial so that HP will continue to lose market share? Well, this is the California Slap Law Podcast, and I'm in the middle of talking about the future of automatic appeals, so you probably figured out that the delay tactic is going to involve an anti-slap motion. Okay, smarty pants, but based on the information I provided, tell me the theory that Oracle used to delay this trial. What was the slap that allowed Oracle to bring an anti-slap motion? Okay, that's enough of that. I just love that theme, but... Remember, HP's attorneys notified the court and opposing counsel that they would need to recalculate the damages to take into account the damages caused by Oracle's announcement that it was going to appeal the judgment. Did it jump out at you now? Oracle's attorneys pounced on that. They filed an anti-slap motion stating that an appeal is a protected activity and HP was seeking damages for that protected activity. Now, for about five seconds, that argument has some intellectual appeal, but then you immediately realize HP isn't suing for the appeal. It's just calculating the damages. The damage calculation had originally assumed that pretty much no one would buy HP computers if Oracle would not provide the software. Then Oracle announced it would provide the software, so the damages had to be recalculated, but with the understanding that since Oracle had still left the issue open-ended with the announcement of the appeal, that would have to be taken into account as well. Now, as we discussed in episode 15, it is never too late to file an anti-slap motion. You don't have to seek leave. So the damages phase of the trial was set for April 8, 2013. Oracle filed its anti-slap motion and set the hearing date for April 5, 2013, one court day before the trial. On April 5th, the trial court denied the anti-slap motion because it was years past the 60-day time period set forth in CCP section 425.16F. And Oracle immediately filed its appeal from the denial of the anti-slap motion, preventing the trial from going forward. The Court of Appeal was not very happy with this delay tactic. The court provided the history of the anti-slap statutes and explained the intention of those statutes. Then it discussed the abuse of the appeal process and took the very unusual step of suggesting how the statute should be amended. This is what the court said. We offer the suggestion that one simple fix might substantially reduce the motivation to abuse the anti-slap procedure, limit the right to interlocutory appeal to denials and allow them only where the motion, one, is filed within the allotted 60 days, and two, would, if granted, dispose of the entire action. Where either of those conditions is lacking, the motion can rarely, if ever, achieve any real saving of time or money, and an appeal can only have the opposite effect. The proposal to the Conference of California Bar Associations is based on that precise language from that decision. 
It would limit appeals only to situations where an anti-slap motion is denied. It would only apply to a denial from an anti-slap motion that was brought within 60 days of service of the complaint. And it would only apply if the appeal, if successful, would dispose of the entire action. Here are my thoughts on the proposal in case anyone from the conference or the legislature is listening. I get that the whole point of the anti-slap statute was to protect the defendant against a slap. So I understand the appeal to making only the denial of an anti-slap motion appealable. The defendant brings an unsuccessful anti-slap motion, so we give him an immediate right of appeal to make sure that his rights are fully recognized and protected. That was especially true in the nascent days of the anti-slap statute when judges just didn't have a clue about the ins and outs of the statute. I've told the story here before. The only anti-slap motion I've ever brought that was denied involved an attorney who sued my client for posts he didn't even make. The judge denied the motion, holding that the only proper forum to criticize an attorney was through the state bar. The defendant certainly needs an automatic right of appeal given judges like that who have their own agenda and don't follow the law. But let's look at it from the plaintiff's standpoint. So the plaintiff brings a righteous lawsuit, but the trial court gets it wrong and grants an anti-slap motion that should not have been granted. If the anti-slap motion disposes of the entire action, then really no harm, no foul. The plaintiff can just appeal the ruling as a final ruling and needs no automatic right of appeal. But what if the ruling only disposes of some of the causes of action? A bad ruling can eviscerate the plaintiff's case, and it may not make economic sense to go all the way through a trial on the remaining causes of action to then appeal the improper ruling on the anti-slap motion. If the goal is to prevent abuse of the automatic appeal, who is the party most likely to abuse the appeal process? Well, in the first instance, only the defendant can bring an anti-slap motion. That puts the defendant in the driver's seat. He can use the anti-slap statute to bring the motion, but he might decide he doesn't want to give the plaintiff a right of appeal. He can weigh the equities for his specific situation. And similarly, why give the defendant a right of appeal only if the appeal will dispose of the entire action? Many of the cases where I bring an anti-slap motion are mixed claims. The plaintiff will sue for breach of contract and then to apply more pressure add bogus claims for fraud and defamation. Under the proposal I'm discussing, if I brought an anti-slap motion as to the defamation claim and lost, I would have no right of appeal. We'd end up in court spending a huge amount of time and energy on a bogus defamation claim. The same judge who didn't understand defamation law for purposes of the anti-slap motion is the same judge making the rulings on the defamation claim during trial. There is a practical side that is lost in all this talk about changing the right of appeal. Let me tell you about an actual horror story so you can see how bad this can be. It's a challenge sometimes to get jurors to understand defamation law. I know this from first-hand experience. This was a case, like I said previously, where the plaintiff sued defendant under a number of claims like trespass and nuisance, and then the plaintiff threw in a claim for defamation. The defamation claim, incredibly, was for something the defendant had said during a meeting of the homeowners association. The speech was clearly protected, and the trial attorney brought an anti-slap motion, but the judge denied it. The defendant just didn't have the funds for an appeal, so the attorney elected not to appeal the ruling based on assurances by the judge that the jury would be instructed on protected speech. Unfortunately, the case was assigned to a new judge, and that new judge refused to honor the promises of the former judge. In fact, the new judge specifically refused to even give the jury instruction that explains protected speech. 
So the case went to the jury, and despite the trial attorney's valiant efforts to get the jury to understand the concept of privileged speech, the jurors didn't like what the defendant had said at the Homeowners Association and awarded a million dollars in damages. Well, no problem, you say. The verdict will be reversed on appeal. Well, here's where things get ugly. Now the defendant had a million-dollar verdict against him and no means to post a million-and-a-half-dollar bond while the appeal was pending. So the plaintiff was free to begin collection while the appeal was pending. And he took the defendant's home during that time. And it gets worse. Most attorneys who don't handle bankruptcy cases don't know this, but an appeal, even a defensive appeal that will generate no money for the bankruptcy estate, is considered an asset of the estate in California. Most other jurisdictions don't agree with that. That's why I'm specifying California. So the defendant filed bankruptcy and the trustee put the appeal up for bid. Now, who, you ask, would have any reason to buy an appeal? Well, there's only one person, the plaintiff, who wants to dispose of the appeal that would wipe out the bogus judgment that only came about because of the bad ruling on the anti-slap motion. So as you can see, taking away a defendant's right to appeal the denial of an anti-slap motion, even when it won't dispose of the entire action, can have serious consequences. So here's my two cents worth. Yes, the current automatic right of appeal can be abused in order to delay the resolution of a case. But don't address that by limiting the protections the right of appeal affords. Instead, expedite the appeal process. The old joke used to be that if you personally filed a writ with the Court of Appeal, it would likely be denied before you could get back to your office. The Court of Appeal can move very quickly when it wants to. So instead of taking away the right of appeal, deal with the delays that appeals bring by designing some expedited process for appeals from anti-slap motions. In its opinion, the Hewlett-Packard Court decried the fact that by filing the bogus anti-slap motion, Oracle delayed the matter by two years. Well, Court of Appeal, whose fault is that? Why is it taking two years to have an appeal decided? One more thing before I move on to the next topic. In episode 15, I discussed how no leave is required to file an anti-slap motion, a late anti-slap motion. And while I said that I normally do ask for permission to file a late anti-slap motion because I don't want to bill the client for all the time necessary for an anti-slap motion if it's not going to be considered, I also said that there might be some times where there would be a strategic value to doing so. Hewlett-Packard versus Oracle has a great discussion of this with a detailed summary of the competing opinions on the timeliness of late anti-slap motions. The Hewlett-Packard Court, the 6th District, opined that if the trial court had simply declined to consider the late motion, there would have been no right of appeal. If you ask for permission to file a late anti-slap motion and the request is denied, there is no right of appeal. If you just bring the motion, and here Oracle brought it just one court day before the trial, and if the court denies the actual motion, then you would have a right of appeal. If you recall the song Free Will by Rush, it contains the lyric, If you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. The 6th District opined that if the trial court had simply refused to consider the late anti-slap motion, Oracle would not have had a right of appeal. But the Rush lyric would disagree. Deciding not to consider a late anti-slap motion is still a decision. Now, I don't suggest for a second that you should do what the Oracle attorneys did, but I point out this tip just to keep it in your arsenal. Finally, I want to discuss this one final bit of strategery, as Bush would say. Now, this has to do with joining in another's anti-slap motion. First, can you join a motion to strike by another defendant? Well, the first court to look at this issue, Decker versus UD Registry, Inc., answered the question no. 
I always say that an anti-slap motion is a hybrid between a demur and a motion for summary judgment, and the Decker court apparently felt the same way, and it held that just as you can't join in another party's motion for summary judgment, you can't join in a motion in a special motion to strike. But then came the case of Barack versus Cuisenberry Law Firm. Barack was another case where a defendant joined in another defendant's anti-slap motion. Barack looked at the holding from Decker and concluded that the Decker court just didn't know what it was talking about. Barack held that Decker was quite correct in holding that a defendant can't join in another defendant's motion for summary judgment because the defendant must present evidence sufficient to negate an essential element of the plaintiff's claim. The evidence must be specific to the defendant, so joining another defendant's evidence in a motion for summary judgment just doesn't work. How would the plaintiff respond? Well, here's the evidence showing a triable issue of fact as to the evidence presented by defendant A, and even though defendant B did not present any evidence, it probably applies to defendant B as well. It just doesn't work. So you really can't join, in any circumstances I'm aware of, a motion for summary judgment brought by somebody else. But with an anti-slap motion, the Barack court reasoned, a defendant need only show that the action arises out of a protected activity. That then shifts the burden to the plaintiff, and given the right circumstances, that can be sufficient to establish the case as a slap as to all joining defendants as well. In Barack, the plaintiff was suing for malicious prosecution, and the court concluded that the anti-slap motion would not turn on evidence specific to each defendant. The court could decide it globally and decided as to the defendants who joined. So you can join another defendant's anti-slap motion. The next question is, why would you? I can't really picture myself doing so, but it's something to keep tucked away in your quiver of strategic arrows in case the right circumstance arises. So here are the takeaways from today's episode. Expect that appeals from anti-slap motions are going to move faster than they may have in the past. Keep an eye on the right of automatic appeals because the times they are a-changing. The courts of appeal need to look inward and come up with their own mechanisms to expedite appeals from anti-slap motions, and they need to quit their complaining. And you do have the ability to join in another defendant's anti-slap motion if the circumstances are right and it makes sense to do so. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, have a great week and try not to slap anyone. Just as I was about to sit down and record this episode, I received an email from a startup service that offers a database of tentative rulings. For some time now, when I'm going to be filing an important motion, such as an anti-slap motion, I begin checking the tentative rulings from the court where I will be bringing the motion. Looking at the tentative rulings from that judge on the specific sort of motion I'm going to bring provides a tremendous insight into how the judge thinks, or at least how his research attorney thinks. Just as you have prior motions in your computer that you draw upon to draft new motions, judges and or their research attorneys have boilerplate language they pull up when they're going to draft a tentative ruling. I see it all the time. I'll bring a demur, for example, and the tentative ruling will cite to cases that neither party cited in their papers. It's not because we both missed some important decisions. It's just that those happen to be the decisions that the judges cited in the past on other demurs. So it can be really helpful to see the cases that the judge will rely on in ruling on the motion and then to refute or embrace those decisions in your own moving papers. The problem is you have a limited universe of prior decisions. If I decide to bring a motion and I start looking at the judge's tentative rulings, well, depending on how far in advance I decided to bring the motion, I might only have access to three or four decisions. 
thankfully in Orange County, the tentative rulings are all posted together. So over the years, as I've downloaded tentative rulings related to my particular motions, I was unknowingly creating a database of all the tentative rulings issued by the judge on that particular day. I can go back and look at those as well because I saved those in the client file. So anyway, this new service offers a database of all tentative rulings organized by county, court, judge, and motion type. So let's say I'm going to bring an anti-slap motion in front of Judge Banks. I can ask this database to show me all the anti-slap rulings issued by Judge Banks. And I can see exactly which cases he's relying on and his thought process when he either grants or denies anti-slap motions. It's a great, great service. So this service set me up an account so I could give it a try and tell you about it. And I'm happy to tell you about it because I was very impressed. This is an effective tool for all the reasons I've just stated. I'm going to get them to set me up with a coupon code so you can try it as well. So tune into episode 17 and I'll give a more detailed review. Thanks again for listening and I'll talk to you soon.